My name is Michael Fueling, I'm the lead pastor here at the Village Church, and uh, I have the joy to open up God's Word with you. So if you would open up your Bibles to the book of John chapter 5. Um, also, we have a whole bunch of men this weekend um, on a men's retreat, so if you think about them, pray for them. God has been doing some really actually incredible things in some of the men. Um, I had the joy to be there Friday night and all day Saturday. Um, really just awesome group of dudes that the Lord brought together. So pray for, pray for those guys. If you're looking for some of your buddies and they're not here, that's probably where they are. So as we continue in the book of John, we are going to start a five-week series called Jesus Is. And what we're going to be doing is we're going to be looking at just different facets and realities and truths about what Scripture says about Jesus. Now, all of this that we are going to teach on over the next five weeks, it is built in the foundation we laid at Easter. So if you were not here at Easter, let me lay in one sentence that foundation for you. The foundation is this. Jesus Christ is fully God. If you don't get that, nothing of what is said here is going to make much sense. So we start with this foundation. He is fully man. We know this because he was a man, but he is at the exact same time. He is fully 100% God. So as you're opening up your Bibles, what I want to ask you for is a few minutes in the front end. I want to set up our text and I want to share with you two theological truths and concepts that I think are going to kind of set the stage for John 5. So here's the first theological concept. And I've taught on this a handful of times, but I I want to make sure everyone is on the same page here. It's called general revelation. And general revelation is actually exactly what it says it is. General revelation are general, generic things that we can know about God, not because we've read it in scripture, not because a prophet has told us, not because of any other special kind of communication from God, but it is, they are things that we can simply know about God by looking at creation and using logic and common sense. And the book of Romans chapter one explains this concept in verse 19. Here's what the apostle Paul says. He says, for what can be known about God is plain to them. And who is them? Them would be any group of people who do not have specific knowledge of who God is by either scriptures or a prophet or something of the sorts. So imagine people all over the world who have never heard a thing about Jesus. That's who he's talking about. And he says this, what can be known about God, it's plain to them because God has shown it to them. Now, my question is, what has God shown to them? He tells you. In verse 20, he says, he has shown his invisible attributes Specifically, namely, his eternal power and divine nature. These things have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. Uh, before any scripture was written, these things are really obvious. And they are seen in the things that have been made. And so the author of Romans, his name is the Apostle Paul, um, what he's doing is he's assuming for all of his readers one basic point of logic He's assuming that, the, that his readers, his listeners, are going to agree on a very simple fact. Here it is. It's a logical way of thinking. He says this, or he, he, here's how he thinks. The existence of a complex creation requires the existence of an uncreated creator. Let me say it again. The existence of a complex creation requires the existence of an uncreated creator. Now, some of you have never thought that deeply before. But the longer you think and the more you use your brain, it is inevitable if you have nothing to prove, if you are willing to follow reality, truth, and logic wherever it takes you, you're inevitably going to get to this point. 
All the complexity of this requires something really big and strong that created it. And inevitably, there has to be an eternal, uncreated creator. That's basic logic. Now, let's ask the question. What can we know about God, about our creator, simply by observing his artwork, his creation? Now, I'm not going to use the Bible at all. I'm just, these are basic things that if you stop and ponder and reflect and think and challenge any human being anywhere on the planet, as long as they have a functioning mind and nothing to prove, should be able to come to the following conclusions. Number one, God is extremely powerful. I mean, the creation of the cosmos to the creation of life, they scream that something somewhere has a resident power of the likes we have never seen or experienced before. Number two, God is very intelligent. Consider the complexity just simply of the eyeball. Now move from the human eyeball and look at cats, look at dogs, the variety of animals and all the different functions of their eyeballs, the different frequencies that different eyes can see that serve them and their life. Or you could look at the human brain. Or you could look at the brain of any animal perfectly designed for the functioning of that creature. God is supremely creative. The human face alone reminds you, the the variation of it reminds you of the inherent complexity and creativity that God has woven into all of creation, let alone the fact that we see right now 99% of all species that have ever existed are extinct. What you get to witness in creation is 1%. That's it. The rest are dead and gone. He's the master of science and math. I mean, you know he's the creator of it. You know that. But modern science and math, we're still trying to make sense of just the physical world, let alone the cosmos. And for whoever created this, they've got this thing down. We couldn't even begin to replicate its power, creativity, intelligence. We couldn't even get close to it. And these are just the things that we know. Let's let's actually go a little bit deeper. Um, What can we learn about the artist's values? What can we learn about what God actually values in creation just by looking at the way creation functions? There's a whole bunch, but we'll go with a few. Number one, God values order. I mean, just consider ecosystems, the ecosystem of the human body, the ecosystem of different aspects of creation. Everything has its own functional ecosystem. Without that kind of order, nothing functions. Everything falls apart. Everything is held in tension by order. Rhythms. God values rhythms. Consider seasons, stars. Everything on the planet functions optimally in its own rhythms. Life, God values life. It is everywhere, even in the coldest, darkest regions of this earth, there is life. God values diversity, and not just in types of life, like plants and animals. Consider, consider just the dog. Uh, best that scientists can figure out is the original dogs were a little bit like larger than huskies, sort of like a wolf, but not as big as the ones we have today. And out of those original dogs, we have chihuahuas and Great Danes. I mean, just imagine the incredible complexity woven into the, the, into the diversity of life. Sexuality, consider one of the most powerful and controlling forces of much of animal and human nature. Gender, the male and female distinction is found in almost every species on the planet. Why? There's something about that that is clearly a value. Survival. The will to live is imbued in almost everything. Even think about the parental instinct found in insects and animals. Now, are there one-off exceptions? For sure. But the 99% 
of creation is wired to survive and the parental instinct in them is wired to sacrifice and give up everything for the good of its offspring so that when they die, the species can continue. It's incredible. It's like woven into the very fabric of how the world is made. Sleep. Anyone love sleep, by the way? Some of you love it because you can't get it. Some of you love it because you can and it feels great. Like everything needs rest. Why did the creator weave rest and sleep into everything? Human life. You have to ask yourself, why are we physically designed in a way that puts us at the top of the food chain? Here's a different one. Some level of anonymity. Like the Lord, for one reason or another, creation doesn't tell us why, but there's a distance between us and God. We grope and try to figure out who he is and, and we don't actually know. Relationship. Every species, for the most part of the planet, is, is connected and drawn to one another and they live in community. Even when they live in isolation, they still require the proximity of some level of community of their kind. Trust. The highest relational value of the creator, it seems the foundation for every functioning civilization, the foundation for every relationship, every home, everything built on this without trust, civilizations, communities, and families completely fall apart. It is woven into the nature of how things are made. Without it, nothing works. I didn't use scripture at all. This is just me using my brain and saying, I can learn a lot about an artist by looking at their artwork. And if I get the level of creation and artistry in this world, God is screaming his nature, his character, his invisible attributes for everybody to see. Second theological concept, and this will be quicker. It brings clarity to the first, and it sets us up for John 5. It's called special revelation. And these are specific things that we can know about God because he tells us. And this is primarily through writing and speaking of prophets of, of old. Now, there are some things that we're unable to know about God from creation. Like, here's a list of questions that we can look at creation and we don't know. So, like, what is God's name? What does he look like? Where does he live? What is he like? Is he alone? What is his big plan? What does he think of me? Where was I before I was born? What happens when I die? You can't look at creation and figure any of that out. But here's what we are able to know because God has specifically and specially revealed to us the answers to life's greatest questions in the word of God. Special revelation tells us his name. His name is Yahweh. What does he look like? That's a mystery. I'm not sure what the father and the spirit who are spirit look like, but we know what Jesus looks like. We know God is Trinity. He's infinitely more complex than our dualistic body soul. Where does he live? He lives outside of space and time in a place called heaven that we can barely wrap our minds around. What is he like? That's too long to get into. He likes a lot of things. Is he alone? No, he is not alone. He lives in community, in a fellowship with the Trinity, with angels, and with saints. What's his big plan? What's he up to? God's big plan is the redemption of all of creation, with the pinnacle of that creation being the redemption of each and every person who believes in Jesus Christ. What does he think of me? Well, that depends if you trusted in Christ or not. If you have, God loves you despite all of your ridiculous sin. Where, where was I before I was born? Contrary to what other people in, in theologies and religions have surmised, you didn't exist. There wasn't like past use. The Bible teaches that that's not real. There, you actually began to exist at the moment of conception. What happens when I die? After I die, I will spend eternity with God or apart from God, depending on whether I have personally trusted in Jesus Christ. These are things that only the scripture can tell us. And without special revelation, we have no access to the kind of knowledge that we need to answer life's most basic fundamental questions. Now, John chapter five, verse 31. Jesus, 
is the pinnacle expression of God's special revelation. When you see Jesus, you see God. When you hear Jesus speak, every word that comes out of his mouth is special revelation from God, clarifying and communicating to you what creation could never tell us. And so if you have the privilege to listen to this message and already know anything that I'm about to teach, it is because you have read the Bible or you have heard from somebody who read the Bible and they trained you well. We are gonna dabble in things that no one in human history could know unless God himself told us. So let me catch you up to speed on John chapter five. It's been a, an eventful chapter. If you have like a couple minutes where you're bored, go read John chapter one, uh, five, chapter, chapter five, one through 30 to catch yourself up. But there's a group of Jews and they're furious. They are livid mad. They are angry at Jesus because he made the most audacious, insulting claim that any Jew could make. He claimed deity. And they are not happy about it. And in order to deal with the issue, they have conspired in their heart and with one another to end Jesus' life through murder. And they're trying to catch him and trick him. And, and so Jesus, in his infinite wisdom, decides to take this government agency, the Jewish leaders, and instead of running from them, he decides, I'm going to engage them directly in conversation. We're going to talk about this. I've got some things I want to say to you, and you need to hear what I have to say. And so in John chapter 5, verse 1 through 30, Jesus has been doubling down on his claims. Here's just a few things he said to them already. He says, I talk to the Father. I see the Father. I am the Old Testament Son of Man. That's the Messiah. And then he says, I've been given the power and authority from the Father to raise people from the dead. Jesus also told them, I am the one who will judge every person at the end of their life. And I'm not just the one to judge, but I'm going to determine personally where every single person goes after they die, heaven or hell. Uh, let me translate. Uh, he says to them, you can kill me, but I'll be raised from the dead and then I'll send you to hell because I can. And so that's the context that we walk into. It's heated. Verse 31, we're jumping in mid-conversation and Jesus is gonna just keep talking and he's gonna defend his claim that he really is God in the flesh. And he says, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. So let's, let's be honest. If I, if I claim to be God, and I can't back up my claims, should you believe me? And the answer is no. And so Jesus starts this part of the conversation off and says, you should completely disregard me as a crazy lunatic if I can't back this up. So here's what he's going to do. He's gonna treat this sort of like a mini court of law and he's gonna bring in four witnesses. And these witnesses have already testified to the reality of who Jesus is, God in flesh, the Messiah, the son of God, the son of man, all these other titles. He's all of them in one. That's him. And he, he's going to take these, these four things and he's going to show these Jews that there are all these people and they're all talking about me and they're validating me. I'm not just getting up here saying to you, look at me, I'm God, just trust me and believe me. So here's, here's the first witness. It's John the Baptist, verse 32. Jesus says, there's another who bears witness about me. It's not just me. It's not just crazy me. And I know that the testimony he bears about me is true, which is funny. Like, how do you know that the testimony is true? Because he's God. He knows. But then he says in verse 33, you sent to John and he has borne witness to the truth. What you may not know is that many of the Pharisees were thrilled with John the Baptist. 
Uh, because John the Baptist was preaching the Messiah is coming. John the Baptist was preaching repent of your sins. And so many of the Pharisees, it seems, went to John the Baptist and they supported him and they rejoiced in him. And he was doing really good things for the nation of Israel. And, and the people of Israel were repenting of their sins in powerful ways. So the Pharisees, understand this, they looked at John the Baptist and they thought he was great by and large. So then they sent a team to John the Baptist because, by the way, who's John the Baptist's cousin? Jesus. And Jesus is making all these waves. So they send a crew to John the Baptist to figure out who do you say Jesus is? Because he's your cousin. You grew up with the guy. You know the real him. And what are they expecting? Like if you were to interview Jesus's brothers after the resurrection, like, is he really God? And the moment James and Jude looked at you and said, yeah, he's God. You'd be like, are you kidding me? Even his brothers think he's God. So they go to his cousin, a guy deeply respected, trying to make less of Jesus. If John says he's just a normal dude masquerading, he's a crazy lunatic, well, they can use that as ammo. And so they go to John the Baptist. You know what John the Baptist says? He's the Messiah. He's the son of God. Believe in him for eternal life. And they are so frustrated. This person that they respected, this person that they looked up to, this person that they propped up is publicly proclaiming who Jesus truly is. In verse 35, Jesus says, he was a burning and shining lamp and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. You liked it when he said things that made your life better. You liked it when he said things that you agreed with. But when he testified to the reality of me, his cousin, whom he's known since he was a child, when he testified to that, then you're done with him. You can step back and say, okay, but John's just a man. He can make mistakes. There's a second witness, and it's Jesus' miracles. Verse 36, he says, the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. Okay, you don't like John? Let's, let's go deeper. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish... The very works that I'm doing, by the way, these are his miracles, these unbelievable things that show the power of God is clearly on this man. He says, these works, they bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. Listen, Jews, I imagine this is what Jesus would say. If I wasn't from God, then why did God give me the power to do things only God can do? Like, ponder this for a moment. You, you believe that God's the sovereign of the universe? He has all the power to do all these things? Well, why then would he give me his power if he didn't affirm me? Now, at that point, they could, they could say, you, if you know the gospels, you'll hear the retort. You're of the devil. The power you have is demonic in nature, and it's not from God. And, he, and Jesus would say things like, well, if I'm from the devil, why am I casting out demons? Like a house can't be divided against itself. That doesn't actually make any sense. If I was here to build the kingdom of the devil, I would be propping up the kingdom of the devil. But everywhere I go, I, I heal and I make right the things that the demonic realm has corrupted and ruined. So I can't be on two different teams. Ah, oh, he's a shyster. He's a swindler. He's a liar. He's just trying to trick us. Okay, maybe the power is real, but Jesus is tapping into the power of demons. Witness number three. God the Father. He says this in verse 37. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about, about me. This is funny. You got you to understand some context here. But he says, his voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen. And what does Jesus keep saying? I've seen him. I've heard him. Oh, you can't? Oh, boo-hoo. I see him all the time, right? 
And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he sent. I want to read to you Matthew chapter 3. And Jesus is right. These Pharisees never heard the audible voice, voice of the Father. But a whole bunch of people did. Let me read it to you. Matthew chapter 3. Jesus is being baptized by John the Baptist. It says, when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were opened and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, quote, this is my beloved son with whom, by the way, I am well pleased. Okay, these Pharisees, they weren't there to hear it, but it seems there were a lot of other people. Now imagine you're the Pharisees. You send your crew over to John the Baptist. Who is this guy? The Messiah. Huh. You see the power of God in him and the miracles, the signs, the wonders. And you say, clearly there's something supernatural happening in this guy. Then all of these regular people come up to you and say, we were, we were literally watching Jesus get baptized. The heavens opened. God spoke. And he said, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. One person must be crazy. Two people, uh, annoying. Three people, four people, five people, 10 people, 20 people, 100 people. We don't know how many people were there. Here's what we do know, that the crowds and all of Israel was coming to see John the Baptist. It was not a small group of people. Enough people saw this that they could testify to the Pharisees and say, we don't know what to tell you. And when you have maybe hundreds of people testifying to the same audible voice and the heavens opening up and the testifying of this Jesus of Nazareth as not just a man, but the son of God, like you got to do something with that. The evidence is getting overwhelming, but they weren't there. And maybe you're like this. Until I see it, I won't believe. I need evidence. And that's fine. I'm, I'm not far off from you. Like that's probably much more closely to the way I am wired. But maybe there's a massive conspiracy. Maybe there's hundreds of people who are all willing to lie just after they got baptized for repentance. I don't know. Maybe that's happening. So Jesus goes to their greatest source of authority, which is the scriptures, number four. He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. <sighs> Silly guys. It's they that bear witness about me. Yet you, uh, this is an interesting word, refuse Here's what Jesus is acknowledging. It doesn't matter what evidence I give you, your heart is hard. You ever dealt with a hard heart? You ever fought with a hard-hearted spouse or child or friend? It doesn't matter what truth or evidence you give them, is it? When the heart is hard, the heart is irrational. He says, yeah, you refuse to come to me that you may have life. But for them, this is a shocking statement because they believed they already had eternal life. They had it because they were good people. This is the age-old lie. I mean, if you are part of Village Church, you hear me say this probably every other week or more. The, the, the age-old lie is good people go to heaven. And this is just a different version of it. We obey the scriptures. We follow the law. We do the right things. And you are obligated to let us in because we are generally good people. That's not, what, that's not how the scriptures work. That's not how God works. What's interesting is that the scriptures themselves pointed explicitly to a salvation that was beyond the book. And so you go all the way back to the, to the Garden of Eden in Genesis, and they sinned, and they were functionally saved because God killed an animal and covered them with its skins. 
Relationship with God in the Old Testament was established by the blood sacrifice of an animal and covenant. Isaac was saved by the sacrifice of an animal. God's people were saved in Egypt by the sacrifice of the Passover lamb and the blood shed for them put over their door. The sacrificial system was rooted in this idea of a substitute sacrifice. The scriptures, the prophets told that there's going to be a suffering servant and he is going to be the Messiah and he is going to die and he will bear the weight of sins on himself. The scriptures from Genesis to Malachi have been looking forward to a Messiah. The salvation that they talk about is never in the book. The book can't save you. It's the author of the book that can save you. And they got obsessed with the book and obedience to the book, not realizing that the book was pointing them to something else. And Jesus is like, dummies, it's me. John testified. My father testified. My miracles testify. Scripture testifies. Verse 45. Apparently, whatever he's saying, they're getting upset. And he says this. Don't think that I will accuse you to the Father. And they're missing his whole point. I am not here to accuse you. I am here to show you the pathway to eternal life and salvation. And it's not through the book. It's through the person. It's through God. It's through Jesus. It's through myself. That's what he's trying to communicate to them. But he does say this. There is one who does accuse you. Now, if you understand the Pharisees, their greatest theologian, the, the most respected person in all Judaism is Moses, the author of the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. He says, there is one who accuses you, Moses. Like, this is a cheap shot, by the way. It's true, but this is like really personal. Moses, on whom you've set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings... How will you believe my words? How dare you? We believe everything Moses wrote. Uh, Acts 3 quote, Moses, <laughs> quotes Deuteronomy where Moses is speaking. Here's, here's what Moses says. The Lord God will raise up for you like a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And Jesus is like, I'm the guy, by the way. That's me. And if you don't believe in me, you're going to be destroyed. <gasps> How dare you? Again, hard hearts are irrational. They are impossible to deal with. They will choose their pride and a lie over reality and evidence any day. Let me, let me bring all this together. There's a type of argumentation. Uh, it's called a cumulative case argument. Here's basically what it says in summary. Uh, it admits that each individual argument or piece of evidence may not conclusively make the point. Considered together, they result in a near irrefutable conclusion. Like individually, each of these witnesses, you could say, okay, John the Baptist, eh, but he's still a human. Okay, the miracles, eh, you could be a demon. Okay, the Father's voice at Jesus' baptism, eh, it could be a big conspiracy theory. Uh, scriptures and Moses and all the prophecies fulfilled in Christ, eh, it just could be a coincidence. But when you put them all together, what Jesus is saying is that the conclusion is irrefutable. Uh, I, I have provided for you Four authoritative voices that are all speaking in unison and they all agree that I am God, the Son of God, the Messiah. And you won't believe. I'll share with you two so what's. Believer, we learn a lot from Jesus, but engage skeptics with a pure motive and a tender heart. 
So if you're reading closely or paying attention, you notice that I skipped verse 34, and I want to read this to you. He says, not that the testimony that I receive is from man. In other words, it's like, I don't need men to tell me who I am. I know who I am. But I say all of these things, all the evidence that I'm giving to you, all the stuff that I'm doing, here's my motivation. That you may be saved. I just want to park on this one word, saved. The Jewish leaders had absolutely zero category they were in danger. If you need to be saved from something, we're, we're numb to the language. If you need to be saved, you are inherently in danger. They have zero category that they are in opposition to God the Father, God the Son, scriptures, and Moses. Zero categories. Before this conversation, they would have said, we're God's favorite people, we're Moses' favorite people, we obey the scriptures, God loves us, we're like the best, we're the closest to God. After the conversation, Jesus is telling them they're going to hell. I want you to think about the conversations you have with people who have not believed in Jesus. The gospel is dangerous because if it's true, it is undoing the very fabric of who they understand they are, where they're going, and their life, if true, goes from being secure and fine to in deep, dire danger. And there is an undoing of an identity when somebody hears the gospel that is of massive threat to their soul. This is why 2 Timothy says this, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. Personally, if you've come to Christ, you've already gone through the process. You've already gotten to the point where you realized you were a sinner who needed to be saved from the wrath of God, the righteous anger of God at your sin. You have already come to grips that the person that you thought you were wasn't actually who you really were. You've already had to undo all these false identities that you attached your heart to and you made an idol. You've already gone through all that. And you've come to Christ and you have begun the process of letting him form you your identity, your values, truth, reality. Like that's a huge process, by the way. Imagine spending your entire life raising, I don't know, two, four, six kids and telling them their whole life, there is no God, there is no God, there is no God. And then you're 55 years old and you gotta go back to all of your kids and say, I was absolutely wrong. I led you astray. I am sorry. Everything I thought I knew was right was actually wrong and I've learned the truth. That is humiliating. Now, it shouldn't be. Sometimes it's good to be humiliated. Humiliation is actually inspiring at times when you choose it. Never underestimate what you are asking a person to undo by simply telling them the gospel. And when you hit a hard heart, slow down. Because hard hearts are irrational and not ready. And I think there needs to be just a tenderness and a gentleness with the actual weight of what we are asking people when we ask them to trust in Christ. We are asking them to lay aside their truth, their values, and their identity into a line with Christ.
That is powerful. Here's what we know. In Christ is life. In Christ is truth. When you look at Jesus, you see God incarnate. When you look at the writings of Christ, you see reality right in front of your face. But never underestimate how hard it is for the human heart to humble itself and acknowledge Jesus Christ as their savior. This is why we say it is a miracle. And the older someone is, when they trust in Christ, the miracle is even greater. When I see people in their 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, turn to Jesus, that's a miracle. So what number two? And I want you to remember this. Evidence cannot create faith. I wish it could. It can only reinforce it. Look at verse 44. Jesus says, how can you believe? Translation. You're not going to believe. And I'm going to tell you why you're not going to believe me. When you receive glory from one another, but you don't seek the glory that comes from the only God. Here's what Jesus is acknowledging to these Pharisees, to these Jews. You have a block. It manifests as a hard heart, but here's the actual issue. What your heart wants more than anything else, it's not truth, it's not eternal life, it's not salvation, it's not God, it's glory. That's these guys. And when you talk to somebody who has never trusted in Christ, you have to understand between their heart and Christ is an idol. And that idol controls them and fights for them and traps them and wants to keep them. For the Pharisees, it was glory. For some of you, it's security. For some of you, it's pleasure. For some of you, it's addictions. I I think more and more for some of you, it is being your own God, determining your own reality, your own truth, your own life, your own values, your own decisions, your own course. You are the God of your life and nobody tells you what to do but you. Whatever it is, understand that when you are talking to somebody who doesn't know Jesus, there is an idol that stands between their heart and Christ. And here's how we often think. I'm tempted by this all the time. Irrefutable evidence that Jesus is God will make them love their idol less. No, it won't. Only the Spirit of God can defeat an idol's hold on the unbelieving heart. You might be here and you might not be a believer. And here's what I know. I didn't share these four evidences to convince you that Jesus is God. I know Jesus is God. A bunch of people here know Jesus is God. Most importantly, Jesus knows Jesus is God. The evidence won't change your mind. I'm actually preaching for our church in this moment. If you're benefited by it, it might be because God is moving your heart and softening your heart. These evidences are not going to all of a sudden make you go, oh, John the Baptist believed in Jesus? Oh, the Father, some people heard his voice? Oh, Jesus did miracles, or so the scriptures say? None of that's going to convince you. I know that. But here's the lie I think so many people have in their head. If I could have just seen the miracles, I would believe. I'm just going to be really blunt. No, you wouldn't. You would do what the demons do. The demons acknowledge mentally who Jesus is. But watching the miracles of Jesus does not make you love your idols less. To break the power of an idol, you need the power of God. And whenever somebody trusts in Christ, we're not saying in this moment, right, that my idols are gone because, I mean, anybody who's trusted in Jesus, you know this, they like haunt you for a long time, sometimes the rest of your life, don't they? You're making a decision though in that moment when you trust in Christ to say, even though my heart wants this more, I am choosing to put my trust in Jesus Christ. 
Most people won't do that because they love their idols more than Jesus. And that's, that's what is standing in most of your conversations. You won't convince people. You cannot show them enough evidence. Even though the most logical person in the world, I think, should come to some basic conclusions about who God is and what he values. And scriptures are consistent with all of general revelation. It all just makes perfect sense. It tells the story of human nature. It just resonates with our mind, our heart, our life. None of that is going to change anybody's mind. It is somehow the power of God through the hearing of the gospel. And the moment somebody hears the gospel and they believe in Jesus Christ, the power of God is upon that person. And in that moment, they have the ability to love Jesus more than an idol. Now, will that idol fight back, everybody? You better believe it. Mine are fighting back every single day. But the power of God is that I run to Jesus instead of my idols. And then when I fail and I run to my idols, the blood of Christ covers me and the spirit of God yanks me back. I wish evidence could save people, but it can't. For those of you who've already trusted in Christ, um, you cannot debate somebody into believing. Let me just share with you one simple, powerful tool you have in your tool belt it is the proclamation of the gospel in a spirit of love. The proclamation of the gospel in a spirit of anger does something to the human heart. Sometimes it works. I'm going to go with the 0.01%. But if you want to have the most statistical probability of somebody hearing and understanding the gospel, sharing that with them in a spirit of love is your most effective tool to see somebody come to Christ. And bathe that in prayer over sometimes, and you know this, many of you in this room, years and years and years or decades and decades and decades. And when they want to debate, here, here's why I, I, I like to debate with people. I only like to debate with people who want knowledge. And if they have a soft, humble heart, now I gotta be careful not to be a jerk, and they gotta be careful not to be a jerk, and the moment one of us crosses into jerk mode, you know what we do? Rain it in. Because my debating and my energy have never proven or made somebody believe in Jesus. But I think the, most probable, the highest probability you'll ever have is the gospel. The power of God shared in a spirit of love. And I'll close with this. Romans 1, 16. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation. To everyone who believes. That if people are going to know and believe in Jesus, it's going to be because they hear and understand the gospel. And if you want to see the highest probability of belief, it will be because you did it with a gentle spirit and a loving spirit so their heart is not defensive. I want to take a moment. I want to pray for you. And then we're going to celebrate communion together. And uh, I am, honestly, I just want to say this real quick before we end. So grateful that you guys let me preach the word of God bluntly and clearly there's never been, just, I don't feel like I have to mince words with you. Thank you for that, for that gift. I appreciate it. Let's pray together. Father, I just love you. I am so thankful that you have given us Jesus. You have loved us wonderfully and perfectly. Our sin is vile, and yet the blood of Christ covers anybody who trusts in Jesus. Lord, I, I pray that the result of this message would be increased gratitude to you for what you've done in our life. Increased tenderness and sensitivity to those who we would love to see know you personally. And a reliance on prayer and the gospel to see hearts transformed. 
And Lord, as we look back at our own story, we just acknowledge that that's how we were saved. We weren't saved because we were scared to death into heaven out of hell. We were saved because we understood our sin and what Jesus did. And we believed. So we love you and I thank you. And as we celebrate communion, well us up with gratitude, soften our hearts. And may we never forget what you have done for us. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, as we celebrate communion, some of you are visiting from different countries um, or different churches and communion at Village Church. It's very simple. It is for anybody who has made the personal decision to trust in Jesus as their God and their Savior. So if you're here and you've trusted in Christ, you believe that Jesus is your God, that he died on the cross for your sins and was raised from the dead, uh, we invite you to partake of communion with us. And if you're here and you have never trusted in Christ, we ask that you don't partake because the Bible says that when you partake, it's a proclamation. You're not using words, but it's nonverbal. And, and if you've yet to trust in Jesus, then we just ask that you let the elements pass. But maybe today you're like, I believe I, I need to personally trust in Christ. I think today is the greatest day to do that. I want to invite you to do that. And here's, I think, one of the simplest ways to do this. When we partake of communion in a few minutes, I want to ask you to partake with us. And maybe this partaking will be your first personal proclamation that Jesus is your God. He died on the cross for your sins and was raised from the dead. And you are asking him to save you. And if that is a decision that you make today, I have awesome news. Number one, God promises to give you his Holy Spirit. He promises you complete and total forgiveness of sins. Yes, you will wrestle with sin, but you will know you are right before a holy God now and forevermore. He promises you uh, eternity, he promises you adoption as sons and daughters. I mean, the benefits far outweigh what you have to leave behind. And so if that's a decision you want to make today, I just want to encourage you after the service, tell somebody you came with, come and share with one of us up front. We'd love to resource you, encourage you, and help you take a next step. But maybe your first step is just to partake of communion and to proclaim that Jesus is your God. Uh, if you didn't get elements on the way in, they're over to, there's a column on my left as well as my right in between the double doors. We're going to have a time of silence. Uh, and then we're going to sing a song. During the silence or when we sing, you are welcome to get up at any time. Go grab elements. And if you'd hold on to those to the end of the song, we're going to partake together as a symbol of our unity that is in Jesus Christ. We'll have a time of silence together. <laughs>